Hey everyone, it's Eric from IndieWire, and I'm actually not on this weekend's episode of Screen Talk, but I did want to chime in at the beginning here just to let you know that the episode you're about to listen to is brought to you by our friends at Vimeo, and you can go to that URL, vimeo.com slash IndieWire, to see a whole bunch of movies that I personally like very much available for rent. Now, so far, I've talked about a couple of them that you can use the promo code ERIC10 to watch at a 10% discount. That includes Don Hertzfeld's amazing short film, World of Tomorrow, the Zellner Brothers' Kumiko, The Treasure Hunter, a really haunting, bizarre movie, and another one called Cheatin', which is a really terrific, independently animated film by Bill Plimpton. I'd also like to plug one more this week. It's Ned Rifle. It stars a whole bunch of people who you may have seen before in Hal Hartley's other movies. Hal Hartley directed a movie called Henry Fool, and another movie called Faye Grimm, which followed this family over the course of actually a couple of generations at this point. And this is the third entry in the trilogy. It's funny in this really wonderfully deadpan way, but it also gets into some really serious ideas about religious fundamentalism in this country, as well as dealing with change, dealing with growing up, and the way in which it does so, as I said, in a humorous way that's also poignant and complex, is a unique uh, fusion of tones that is so particular to the way that Hal Hartley writes and directs his films. If you haven't discovered his movies, this is a perfect opportunity to do so. So use that promo code ERIC10, go to vimeo.com slash IndieWire. Let me know what you think, and I hope you enjoy this week with Ann and Kate. everybody um we are back on screen talk for a special edition without eric Cohn, who's on vacation in columbia which i visited this year so i envy him because it's it's a fun place to go and um i'm joined by katie urbland kate i always i always do that kate urbland who um has taken over as managing editor congratulations how long have you been on the job now thank you it's been it's been like two and a half weeks, but it's been such a quick passage of time because with Eric out uh, out of the office, I've sort of been running things in New York for the past four days. So it's sort of a, a trial by fire, but I think it's been going pretty well. Well, luckily, you're pretty experienced at this. You know, you've been a critic and, a, and you've been an editor and you've been at the Dissolve and the Playlist and you've done Screen Crush and Film School Rejects as long as well as a lot of print stuff. So it's Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, you know, you've, you've done your bit. You're not a, you're not a green person coming right. in. I've certainly I've done my fair share. That is for sure. And I can tell you all that uh, Kate is already uh, organizing IndieWire uh, to a degree that we may have not been organized before from the beginning IndieWire, which is 19 years old, by the way. 19 years old yesterday. Um, (laughs) Has always, you know, been a bit of a scrappy, you know, fly by the seat of the pants, you know, respond to what's going on right now, kind of nimble uh, organization, which is why I've, I I wanted to work there, and it's worked well for me. But if anything you can do to make us more organized is a good thing. Just like a lot of Google documents, a lot of shared calendars. 
So that's that's kind of what I'm into. All right. So um, so the first thing we're going to talk about, you've been to Comic-Con before. I, I got back on, on Sunday. What did it look like from afar? It looked... I feel like the past couple of years, things have seemed to be a bit more organized. I remember when I went, which is about three or four years ago, you know, there was always an issue getting Wi-Fi when you're in Hall H. So you just see all these sort of hysterical tweets from people that they weren't able to to get their coverage up or to even do their coverage when they were in Hall H. And I feel like that's certainly gotten better. It did seem like without Marvel there and without Sony there, it was, you know, it was less hectic. Than it seems like it's been in the past, but that's I true. Think- it was better. It was better on the on the ground. Um, there was, but there was less stuff going on off site, and it was more television stuff. And I really noticed that a lot of the journalists in the sort of the you know the real horror is getting the VIP passes to each mm-hmm. of the uh, you know um, presentations in Hall H because otherwise you have to stand in line for two days you know <laughs> and and so um, the the a lot of people are doing video a lot of people are doing uh, Periscope right. um, it was it's it's a it's a I, I was like sitting there with my laptop, you know, typing everything that everyone said is, and holding on to that intel for the future. But but uh, it, it, it seems to be, and also there's a, an interesting sort of consolidation going on as people adapt to the new ways of, of functioning. I, 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 I'm amused, too, to see, you know, established organizations like EW and other places just trying to, to, to work their way into the future. Um, and so a lot of the sites that we're familiar with uh, have been sold. And Film School Rejects is resisting that, as I understand. Yes. Uh, Film School Rejects has been sort of independent from the start. Uh, Neil Miller, my old boss over there, has, you know, as best as I've known for many years, has no intention of, of selling or selling out. Um, but I mean, we'll see how long that can last. I think, I think FSR has a ton of great people. Um, a lot of great people have come out of there. I'm not just talking about myself. Um, and I really respect what Neil's doing, but you know, it's hard The you know, the landscape is changing and you can't just start a blog now and, you know, actually make money off of it. It's really hard to do. And I remember a few years ago when FSR finally started, you know, really paying writers, that was a big moment for them. And the Dissolve, the other place you worked for recently, um, uh, left us and didn't make it. And um, what would be your sort of, uh, my sense of it is just what you just said, that it's impossible, you know, a lot of these big sites, the ones that are surviving and doing well, places like Collider or um, Slash Film, they've been around a long time and they have an old URL and they have established people working for them, whereas the Dissolve was really starting from scratch and building an audience is a hard thing to do. I mean, the the thing with the Dissolve that was, you know, was so wonderful was that there was commenters that were so involved. I mean, it was one of the best commenter landscapes I've ever you know, written for, like, you would actually want to get into the comments and see what people said, and, you know, a very intelligent discussion, and there are people who just love the site so much, but that, you know, that wasn't enough to keep it alive, and I think when I found out the news, you know, I'm on the subway, and I'm getting an email from people, and I was just heartbroken, and, you know, I recently left to come to IndieWire, but it was very upsetting for me, and I find that that stuff, even though it keeps happening, it really doesn't get any easier, well, what it does is it makes the rest of it. I remember when you know Chase and the Whale went down, and I and I talked 
to to what, what is his name? Chase Whale is that his name? Chase Whale. Yep. So I talked to him and and because it's 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 almost like. If it can happen to them, it can happen to, you know, it's like a scary thing. Now, as well as IndieWire is doing, and we're doing very well, and we're old, too, um, the, the, thing, the thing is you, you have to sell your stuff. You have to have a certain level of, you know, yes, this is, this is an article appropriate for a listicle, or this is the headline that will get people to click on it, or it, it isn't about the name of the writer necessarily, although that can help. It, it, it's, it, it's really about figuring out how to package these stories, don't you think? No, absolutely. And, you know, one of those things that, you know, if you're, you're pitching something well enough, you really need to already have that headline in mind and, and how someone might, you know, talk about it on Twitter and how you're going to get that stuff out there. You can't just have just a great idea anymore. You need to take it a step further. Yeah. But what, as far as Comic-Con goes, um, we, uh, you know, Tarantino was, was front and center with, with uh, The Hateful Eight. And that's one of those things where I saw the footage in 70 <laughs> millimeter on that big Hall H screen. And if you weren't in that room, you're not seeing that footage. You know, that did not go out. Um, that is not, uh, in fact, everybody was, the woman came running over to me because I had taken a little picture from the <laughs> promo reel that was uh, ahead of the, of the thing. And I, and literally while I'm trying to cover the interview with Tarantino on the dais, this woman is scrolling through my iPhone looking for the pictures that I took because I took like one screen grab, one, you know, iPhone yeah. photo. Um, and so they were being very, very uh, careful and well, they should, um, I won't do that again, <laughs> you know? but um, it looked fantastic. It looked, but he was doing, you know, a real promo on, on getting people to come and see the road show. Well, I mean, but that also, you know, you got, you know, taken to task for taking a photo, but then I think about all that stuff that happened with suicide squad where, you know, oh, you know, this is just for Comic-Con, here's footage just for Comic-Con, and then people did bootleg it, and sites put it up, and then they released the whole thing. And I just wonder, I feel like that's going to become more common. Along with an apology from the filmmaker, you know, who was really upset, you know, yeah. that, that, that that had to happen. Now, I have to say, Suicide Squad, uh, David Ayer, I thought it looked fantastic. I, yeah. I loved the premise. I loved the footage. I thought the casting was right on. Will Smith, Margot Robbie, who is very good in Z for Zachariah, and t is turning out to be an interesting uh, new face who's going to go a long way, I think. You know, you see one movie like a Scorsese movie, Wolf of Wall Street, that's one thing. To see to see her in, this, in the, the footage, it was so awesome. And meanwhile, everyone else is raving about Deadpool, which I understand is a good story, that people have been rooting for this for a long time. It's R-rated. Fox is moving into the R-rated space now with the Marvel material that Disney won't do. I get that backstory, but just on the merits of what I saw, I saw a wise ass in a suit, you know, being extremely violent, <laughs> and I didn't know why, you know? Uh, what, what's your response? I mean, I know Deadpool is like, you know, this is a movie that's basically being made because the fans pretty much demanded it but you know I feel like even after years of doing this I'm still always trying to catch up with my comic book properties and Deadpool is something that I, the only thing I know is 
it's Ryan Reynolds and he's kind of a smart ass. And I think, oh, well, you know, that makes sense. That's a good role for him. It is a good role for him and it may be fine. And I'm with you. I've, I'm not familiar with the character or the comics and I am always, uh, I grew up with the, with the canon, you know, the, the great DC and Marvel comics that were around when I was a kid, basically. And, you know, uh, maybe I caught up with Watchmen and the Dark Knight, you know, because I married a cool husband, you know. Right. Um, but, uh, well, and the other thing that was going on there, um, obviously Superman, uh, versus, uh, Batman versus Superman, um, again, I've been skeptical. I have been more skeptical than the fan hordes. I know it was the most popular one, uh, at the whole thing of all the ones that were, all the footage that was shown. That's the one that trended the highest on all the different, uh, uh, social networks. And, um, the, the people in the room, they went nuts for it. And obviously the people at Warner Brothers and Zack Snyder and everybody involved in making this know what they're doing on some level, but I didn't like the last Superman, and I still don't understand why these two guys are fighting. Well, it's just like, the thing with Batman versus Superman for me is that this whole dark and gritty and brooding thing just feels so played out, and Batman versus Superman just looks like the darkest and the grittiest, and I'm just so tired of that. And it's funny, I actually, a couple of weeks ago, I caught a very early screening of The Man from Uncle. And Henry Cavill is fantastic in it. He's so funny and handsome, and he just feels like a movie star. And that's nothing that I got from Man of Steel. So I wonder if he's just getting more comfortable with himself, and maybe there's a chance that we'll see that in Batman versus Superman, or if I'm just going to have to keep telling people to go see The Man from Uncle. Uh, I was impressed also by the Man Uncle, and I grew up with that one. I, right. I actually lived through the. I, I I ran home. That was in the days where you had to be sitting in front of your television <laughs> set at the right appointed hour. I remember my my parents had a dinner party the night that the Man from Uncle was on, and I did. I'm not like this. I threw a fit because <laughs> I couldn't see it, and they weren't going to let me turn on the TV. <laughs> that, those were in the days when there was only one TV in the house, right. and it was black and white. I might add. Um, anyway, the the uh, the it looks. It, I like Army Hammer. Uh, I love Alicia Vikander, who's a rising star as well. The women did very well. Okay, so uh, the women are doing great, and I I went to the Women Who Kick Ass panel, which EW throws every year. And uh, Gwendolyn Christie was on that, as well as the Game of Thrones panel, which was a lot of fun, but didn't generate much interesting intel, uh, except for uh, Gwendolyn talking about how difficult it was to do that fight with the, uh, with the hound, you know? He, he, is it the hound or the hand? It's the hound. The hound. The hound. I always forget. Anyway, she killed herself doing that fight, and it was fun listening to those details. And she's, because she's been on Game of Thrones, she's become very poised. She was also, she was also on the Star Wars panel right. because right. she's playing uh, one of the, um, so we got to see her three times. She's playing one, she's playing a stormtrooper inside, you know, that incredible, uh, uh, costume, and yet she said it's important there's a woman in there, you know, and so she knows yeah. how to give the bites. The Brits are good. They're articulate. She, I just, I love her. I'm so excited for Star Wars, and there are, you know, some fantastic women in Star Wars, and I, I can't wait to see, because I haven't seen her in anything else 
besides Game of Thrones. And, like, that's my fault. So, but I am looking forward to seeing her do something that looks very different. Yeah, so the the star. I'll go back to the to the women in a minute. The Star Wars panel, uh, of course, was the high point of of the whole thing, and it was um, not disappointing. Even though they didn't show any footage because they're not opening until December eighteenth, so right. they basically are going to save the the trailer for the fall. And they were um, the the people who were on the dark side were were uh, Adam Driver of Girls mm-hmm. Fame. Um, and Lincoln or whatever you want, you know, various movies he's done. Um, uh, of course, uh, rising star Donald Gleason, who, who, who we love, and also uh, Christy. But she knocked them both out in terms of, you know, being articulate. The two of them, they, would, they were hardly able to say anything. <laughs> and then our driver, you know, J.J. Abrams had to, had to order him, <laughs> you know, to answer a, a question. He was so... My, he was like answering yes or no, you know, um, and and he was too cool for the room. And and then um, and then Donald Gleason revealed some spoiler that he wasn't supposed to, which was amusing. Um, but it was when the three legacy players came on, uh, Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford and and uh, Mark Hamill and and. Hamill basically, you know, was saying, you know, if if you find out that you're in love with with your sister, um, and you know that 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 must have been really tra- tra- traumatic for him, you know, because you know thirty <laughs> years have gone by, and Harrison Ford leans over and puts his arm around him and says, how many times do I have to apologize <laughs> for this, you know? And everybody just ate it up; they loved it, and the behind the scenes footage worked really well, and then they got to go to the I'm sure you all know this already. They got to go to the live Star Wars concert, and I got to run back to the hotel and write up my story. <laughs> yeah, no, everyone seemed to be really excited about that concert. But I think everyone also seemed to be really excited, not only that, you know, Harrison Ford is, is doing well after his plane crash, but that, you know, like you said, it seems like he was there and he was kind of hamming it up, which isn't something that we see too much from Harrison. He was genuinely comfortable in this group, and he obviously is very happy with the the progress of the of the movie. And I had seen him in 2010 at the Cowboys and Aliens panel, which was his first uh, appearance at Comic Con, and he was awful, you know, really stiff and really curmudgeonly, which is what we're all familiar with, as you say. And so it was wonderful to see him smiling and and you know just delighted and and communing with the fans. That's great. Yeah, that's that's what I was, you know, reading on Twitter where everyone was so excited about that. And that's that's very exciting to hear. Yeah. Now, this will be, you know, if anything can beat, you know, Jurassic World at the end of the year on the box office front, it might be it might be this one. And and they're not wrong uh, to tease it out a a little more, whereas Warner's, you know, gave us as much as they had. uh, and Legendary did a thing, too, and I am still very much looking forward to Crimson Peak, which also has two terrific uh, women in it, um, uh, Jessica Chastain and Mia Wasikowska, as well as the heartthrob man of my life, Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> no, that's another one. Every time that there's there's a trailer released, I just I have to stop everything and watch because it just looks so great and so different and scary and sexy. I'm very excited. Well, Guillermo del Toro says that he, this is the first time that he's been able to combine the art side of him, which tends to be Mexican film, you know, Spanish language films, right. and the uh, mainstream, uh, you know, horror side. And and Pan's Labyrinth was was a little bit um, of both, but it was still in a foreign language. So this one is looks 
and he says it's the most beautiful film he's made. And just judging from what I've seen, that's absolutely true. Oh, that's great. So on the women's side, it was, I, I, I'm now going to check out Agent Carter because Haley Atwell impressed me. Is that a show you've ever seen? I have not watched Agent Carter. It's one of those things that we have it on the DVR. So like all of the episodes are there, but I haven't been able to find time, but I do like her. And I, I'm always happy when I see her in a Marvel film. She just has a wonderful presence and she's very funny and she's very pretty. So I, you know, I could probably catch up too. And another articulate Brit. <laughs> and, uh, but the, but the thing is even on, uh, there was even a panel. Um, uh, Oh God, I'm going to forget this guy's name. Uh, Sorry, but there was a panel where with a with a group of young male uh, actors uh, on television um, that was called uh, Warriors. It was, it was another EW panel, and uh, there were there were four sort of muscle bound, you know, fabulous uh, action guys, including another heartthrob, Sam Hugan from Outlander, mm -hmm. um, another articulate Scott in this case. <laughs> Um, but, uh, this one guy, um, who's, I believe on the shield agents of shield, I believe that's his show. He was talking about gender identity and making fun of how he was the, the sort of the, the geeky, you know, non-muscle guy. And the whole conversation ended up being fascinating as one, you know, one of the really tough guys was confessing that, you know, there is, uh, sexual harassment of male actors and, and that it's a dangerous thing. And they got into some stuff that I never would have expected. So, you know, gender politics and um, identity and uh, a continuing question of, of, of how women are, are, are handled in movies was very much front and center. I mean, I feel like that's something that we're hearing so much more about. And I think, you know, it's even over the past year, you know, how much we talk about it and write about it and, you know, people want to hear more about it. It's been really, really exciting and really inspiring for me. And I'm excited to see, you know, where things are at a year from now. I know. And I, I, I do agree with the theory that the Internet is what's making it um, change. And you can just see, you know, day after day, I, I you know, one actress after another. I mean, you know, someone like Meryl Streep or, or Laura Linney, they spoke out very early on. You know, and even the New York Times wrote about uh, women in, at, at the con. So, so, so that was sort of cool. Okay, so now we're going to talk about train wrecks. Speaking of women, um, the uh, Amy Schumer uh, written and starring uh, comedy by directed by Judd Apatow uh, is opening, and um, I have a feeling that I am more in love with it, which I am. Um, I I have to say I'm one of those people who's a starving person. I when I go to a movie with a smart woman protagonist and she's funny and she's sexy and she's uh, figuring out how to find herself, even if it is inside the bones of a relatively conventional Hollywood romantic comedy, and that's what this is. This is a studio movie paid for by a studio, funded by a studio. I said that redundantly. Um, and, uh, you know, Judd Apatow has paid the big bucks to direct a, com a commercial movie. I recognize that that's what it is to begin with. If, it, if it's all that, 
and it's hilarious and shows me things that I normally never get to see in a movie like, you know, bloody tampons or not visually, but verbally. Um, I'm, I'm happy. What, what, what would Ryan Latanzio is going to join this conversation. Uh, the staff writer for Thompson on Hollywood, who is finally on, uh, uh, Skype. Ryan, what, what's, what's, what are your issues with, with this movie? Um, I guess my issues um, are really the things that, that that don't trouble you, which are the, the romantic comedy bones that, that the movie is sort of, sort of resting on. You know, I'm a big fan of her show on Comedy Central, which is, you know, extremely wonderfully gutter-minded and completely unhinged and unfiltered, um, which is what really makes it subversive. And, and I suppose I sort of came to this movie hoping for some version of that show, but what I really got, I felt, was a sanded-down Hollywood package that sort of dressed as something more, um, you know, progressive, and, and you know, maybe it's my age or something, but, you know, I felt that the movie, in a sense, was kind of judging her lifestyle a little bit. You know, I didn't like that she sort of essentially forced to clean her up her act, um, you know, so that she can settle down and have monogamous uh, affair with someone, you know, so that she can find love, as it were. Um, but, you know, I actually didn't think that anything, I didn't even think she was that much of a train wreck. I mean, you know, she she indulges in some drinking, but does seem to be sort of high-functioning habits, to, to an extent anyway, until, you know, her life sort of does spiral out of control. But I didn't really see anything that, uh, you know, horrifying or, or train wreck-esque about the things she was doing. And so, you know, in that sense, certainly I think that the, the title was, was misleading. Kate? I do like I do agree with what Ryan's saying about how, you know, she really doesn't seem like she's too much of a train wreck until the last act where sort of everything falls apart for her. Um, but you know, knowing knowing Apatow, I'm sure that there's like a lot of stuff that we'll see in deleted scenes. But I and I do think that the movie kind of judges her lifestyle in a strange way. I sort of wrote about this today where, you know, when they're like, Amy, you're an alcoholic, it feels um that, that hasn't really been delivered so much, but I think that she's so wonderful and she's so funny. And I think that the first act of this movie is I've seen the movie twice now and both times for like the first 25 minutes, I'm laughing so hard that my stomach hurts. And I think that she and Bill Hader have, you know, wonderful chemistry together. I love watching them. And if a movie is dressed up as a romantic comedy, that's the last thing that I have a problem with because no matter how many movies I see, I'm still just, I'm a rom-com girl at heart, and I've learned to embrace that. And I'm glad that Trainwreck does that in its own way. I agree with that. And I, I, I think that the, the romantic comedy has been an endangered species for a long, long time, because part of the problem for Hollywood screenwriters and, and directors, and even on the indie side, is in, where they have a little more room to, to play around with the genre, um, you know, what are the impediments, really, to, to a romance, you know, that are left these days? And the idea that you would sort of, sort of do a gender switch on the uh, person who doesn't want to commit, who, who wants to behave like Don Juan, who wants to jump in and out of bed and, and not stay overnight and doesn't like to be cuddled while they're sleeping, you know, that's usually the guy. And in this case, it's the girl who is intimacy phobic 
if you like. And our, Ryan, I would argue with you that she's really unhappy. <laughs> you know? She's really not doing well. Um, I don't think she's enjoying this lifestyle. You may, you know, it, it, it you know, uh, I think there are a lot of guys who participate in this lifestyle who aren't enjoying it either. Um, so uh, maybe I am rooting for, for her to find happiness in a, a healthier one-on-one uh, -on -one, uh, relationship. I'm not saying that the movie is sending her into suburbia with two kids. And I would also argue that drinking your way out of being unhappy is not necessarily the solution as much as I enjoy a drink now and then. Uh, did she have to give it up entirely in order to tie up all the ends at the end? No. Yeah, I guess then in that case, I'm, I'm rooting for her self-destruction because, um, <laughs> you know, well, it, it sort of baits you with a lot of surprises in the beginning. And then, I don't know, I found myself sort of checking my watch in, in the last hour a number of times because it just sort of, uh, you, 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 you can almost see all the boxes in your head and it's sort of checking them off. You know, I'm like, okay, well, she's got to tie up these loose ends. She's got to make amends with this person and this is going to happen. She's going to end up with Bill Hader, and maybe they won't go to suburbia, yes, but they'll have some, you know, some version of that. Um, it, for some reason, it sort of reminded me of Nymphomaniac, like that being the more extreme, unfettered version of this, this kind of story of this kind of woman. Um, but, you know, I guess, um, I don't know, what do you think, Kate? I mean, let me think. <laughs> I think the Anne's point about how she doesn't seem very happy in the beginning, she just doesn't seem very fulfilled. And I think that, you know, although it's so traditional to be like, oh, well, you have to get into this monogamous relationship with a, a stable guy and then you're going to be happy. But I think that there's other stuff at play. Like she sort of needs to come to terms with her father and especially with her sister who does have the suburban life that Amy is like actively rejecting all the time. So I think she's not going to really pick up with that. But I, I think that she wasn't happy. And like, you know, the best relationship she had with a guy was Dave Attell, who's the homeless guy who's on her corner. Like that's the most consistent man in her life for a long time. And if she needs to find happiness with a guy, if it's going to be Bill Hader, I don't really have a problem with that. The movie starts with her saying, judge me fuckers so to me it seemed like she was sort of embracing the joy and the freedom of of her uh you know sexual proclivities um you know in excess but i guess maybe that sort of colors her now as sort of an unreliable narrator that really what she's saying is like be sorry for me fuckers well, no, no, I disagree with that. I don't think she knows how unhappy she is. I think that's absolutely, you know, if you drink enough every night, you know, you, you're you're having a good time. Um, the, the 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 question is is uh, does she, does she find out? You know that she's unhappy in that job, that she's unhappy with this, that this guy is making her happy. That's that's what she finds out. Well, one of the other things that's interesting is like the only friend that we really see her with is Vanessa Bayer's character, who's hilarious, but you don't really get the sense that they're super close. So there's definitely like parts of her life that are very obviously lacking. Like she doesn't have a really good friend group. Her job, even though you know she seems to be successful at it, isn't fulfilling to her. She has this off and on thing with her dad, and the best person in her life is her sister. But they're they're always you know coming to blows. So I think she's got a lot of things that she does need to work out, even if in the beginning she doesn't realize it. She thinks she's having a great time. She yeah. looks like she's having a great time. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, so basically, um, I, I think people should check out Trainwreck. Um, now, on the other comedy that's opening this weekend is Woody Allen's um, Irrational Man, which I saw at Cannes and was found it to be B tier Woody Allen, you know, not, not the, uh, the A-list Woody Allen. I mean, I put, I put of his recent films, I think he's been on a a sort of, um, up and down decline since, um, maybe, uh, Deconstructing Harry would be the last great Woody Allen movie in my, in my, in my mind. But, but of the recent ones, Midnight in Paris was the high point. And I would say this one is, is really, you know, retread city going over a lot of the same themes, the same older protagonist, younger woman, Emma Stone and Joaquin Phoenix, the same philosophizing professor using a lot of Woody Allen's language, which is so identifiable at this point that these actors are reading a script written by Woody Allen. And I don't know, that just stops me now. Unless the actors are like Kate Blanchett, who can bring it to life and absolutely make you believe that this is a person that exists in her own right it feels like they're all reading scripts to me i mean this the movie for the first act is like a parody of a woody allen movie like it's so you know paint by the numbers and here's this character and here's this thing that they're going through and then it does sort of veer off into a different area but i was kind of rolling my eyes for the first act because i was like this is what it's become ryan um yeah well um this is yet another one of Woody Allen's irreverent murder comedies. Um, but they, and yet I sort of liked it, um, especially when stacked up against his newer movies. I mean, I, you know, I actually hated Midnight in Paris. I thought it was like a guessing game of who's who in, in, in 20th century literature. Like, look, there's, there's Unibarns, there's some people, and then there's this person. But, and so this, I thought I had a little bit more, more depth. Um, and it's also shot by uh, Darius Kongi, who shot uh, Michael Haneke's Amour, and who shot for Jean-Pierre Jeunet and David Fincher. So he brings some visual beauty that uh, I think some of Alan's more recent movies have, have, have lacked. Um, and though these are pretty sorry roles that, that Emma Stone and Parker Posey are, are slapped with. And actually, Parker Posey has admitted that she's bitter about not having been in a Woody Allen movie for a long time, which is understandable because she seems, you know, she would be ideal casting for him. Um, so these are sort of thankless roles that they're given. Um, and yet, I think that both of them give really good performances. I agree with that. Especially Emma Stone, who I'm, who I'm not usually that crazy about. Um, she has a sort of uh, mischievous uh, curiosity to her that, that, that I sort of really like. No, I mean when you when you get Woody Allen, you you know you get something that's a, that's a, that's pretty much uh, you know a, a level above most of what you get. It's just that at this point, if I can say to you that I've seen every single Woody Allen movie because I've been watching them every year as they come out, um, you know I I would rather at this stage go back and see some of the early ones, which are truly remarkable. Annie Hall, Manhattan. Uh, Hannah and her sisters. I mean, these are brilliant, wonderful movies. And at this stage, he does seem to be um, rehashing some old themes. And Stardust Memories, if I can just throw that. Yes, yes. There's a long list, a remarkable list. I don't want to put down Woody Allen per se. I mean, it's it's just... um, 
how, how does he do it, you know? So there's some other films coming up this weekend. Um, uh, the Look of Silence, uh, finally opening after having been introduced at various uh, uh, festivals over the over the year. Uh, it, the, this is, in effect, uh, a sequel uh, to The Act of Killing, uh, a remarkable, remarkable uh, uh, sort of further exploration um, of what happened uh, in this terrible uh, place. Uh, Ryan, you, you'd interviewed the filmmaker. Why don't you uh, give us a few more details? Yeah, uh, Joshua Oppenheimer's director, and he's this beautifully erudite man, um, very well-spoken, very intelligent. And, of course, for The Act of Killing, which was um, Oscar-nominated for Best Documentary a couple of years ago, uh, he went to Indonesia to explore the uh, genocide uh, in 1965, um, in which uh, a, a regime of, uh, you know, basically systemic murderers um, killed uh, hundreds of thousands of people um, living in Indonesia. And so the first film asked the, uh, you know, perpetrators to sort of reenact their, uh, you know, mass killings and these sort of elaborate, Grand Guignol set pieces that were, you know, very striking and, and, and horrifying at the same time. And so now this film is much more subtle uh, and uh, contemplative and very, very sad because he asks uh, one of the uh, family members of the victims, uh, a man called Adi, to uh, basically he confronts um, all of the uh, perpetrators of the genocide in these sort of one-on-one, really uh, confrontational I, they're not quite interviews, but, um, you know, he basically asks them, you know, why did you do this? Um, because his uh, brother was killed um, in 1965. And so Joshua Oppenheimer takes you through these various encounters that he has with um, these murderers who don't really feel a lot of remorse. And, um, you know, there's really no hope or resolution. It's just, you know, it's just incredibly sad, but it's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a beautiful movie and beautifully made. Um, and, and it seems to have taken a lot of cues from uh, Werner Herzog, who's a friend of, of Oppenheimer's and now an admirer. Kate, did you get to see this one? I have not seen it yet. I'm planning on seeing it this weekend. I missed it at a bunch of festivals. It always seems to be the way with the movies I really want to see and that everyone's talking about. You always miss a couple. So I'm looking forward to catching up this weekend. Yeah, the thing the thing that struck me about it was on the was the idea that you could have people who somehow accommodate themselves. You still have all these people living together in this community, and there's this horrible burying that is occurring, and that's how people are coping. And this one guy won't let it be buried, and everyone wants him to. Everyone wants him to shut the hell up, you know. And he's going out there with the camera and forcing people to deal with it. And in this one scene that really broke my heart, um, the daughter of one of the killers looks at him and, and, and apologizes to him and tells him how, how much it upset her, uh, what he was telling her. That the, the, that the being forced to actually hear the story made her consciousness uh, you know, embrace and understand what happened in a way that she never had before. And, and that, that was very moving to me. I agree. There's also another very moving scene um, because there's a lot of sequences that sort of spend time with Adi's family, uh, sort of acquainting us with their 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 domestic life, and, and they're both old and feeble, and you know, 
sort of falling apart. And uh, that there's a scene in which uh, his uh, father, who is um, blind, um, is uh, on his hands and knees, you know, screaming in this room. He doesn't know where he is. Um, he's really just in his own house, but he's so confused and and so you know, you know, riven by dementia. And this scene is actually shot by by Adi, who is the subject of the film. Joshua Oppenheimer gave him the the camera to sort of shoot this moment of his father, um, who was sort of crying out for help, and yet he's filming this moment. So it's sort of there's a lot of strange tensions like that throughout the movie. It is actually a, a rather interesting testament on the process of aging <laughs> for one who's dealing with it myself. Um, uh, and, and then um, b b we shouldn't take too much longer, but True Detective is still playing out week after week after week. And we, um, I believe, uh, I, I ha the thing that's interesting to me is that I haven't bailed yet. I'm still engaged with it. And I actually thought this last one was the best one so far. Um, uh, and so I am still hanging in. Uh, Jeremy Pedeswa uh, did a good job. He, he he does a lot of HBO stuff, uh, including Game of Thrones. Uh, great, very very good Canadian uh, director. And there's a you know there's an action sequence, sort of an OK Corral shootout, which was pretty exciting. Um, and to watch uh, our fave um, Rachel McAdams running with a gun was was really a sight sight to behold. But but uh, you know it doesn't have the cohesiveness of the last. Uh, first series. It doesn't have uh, uh, someone like Carrie Fukunaga sort of wrangling and, and debating with, with the uh, showrunner uh, Nick, Nick, Nick Pizzolatto. Um, and yet it's still keeping me interested, which is almost a surprise. How is, how's it playing for you, Kate? I mean, I think the first episode of the season, I was like, I don't think I can come back for more. This is just not good. But every episode does get a little better and like you I mean I just love seeing Rachel McAdams I think that this is a great part for her I think she's easily the best part about the show and then something like the shootout this last week was like well you know maybe maybe this can pull it out and be something at least it's not going to be this laughable disaster which is how I felt about it during the the season premiere but I mean I do always feel like I'm on the edge of well, maybe not this week. I'm going to watch it, you know, and just, and that's not how I felt last season at all. So it's just, it's very strange for me. Ryan? Well, well having rewatched the last season, uh, the first season recently, uh, as I'm now uh, watching the second season, it, it, it was really sort of Nick Pizzolatto's writing all along that kind of undermines things. Um, and obviously, you know, there's been enough said about the overwriting in this season and the these very dramatic, morose monologue um and so i'm just sort of i'm actually just laughing at it i'm honestly i'm appreciating it as a comedy some of these lines are so you know dramatic and taylor kitt she talks you know as if from beyond the grave the gravel stuck into his cheeks like he's just he's so everyone is so serious all of the time and so you know and also it's, it starts to just feel like work you know the other night i caught up on on the last the two most recent episodes and, you know, it had been hanging over my head for days, and there was just something about it that I just, I, I wasn't really compelled to go back and finish it. But I did, and the last episode did have a few entertaining uh, moments of surprises, so uh, I, I'm uh, curious to see uh, how things turn out next week. 
Well, on that note, I think we should probably wrap this up. Uh, it was fun having the two of you on. I enjoyed this very much. Um, and hopefully you'll both be back even after uh, Eric returns. And uh, thanks for playing along. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye, guys.